This guy spends 20 minutes of his podcast just on this rant, like sounding like somebody who needs serious medical help. I mean, he just goes on and on about this and that, and he just oh, are we on? I guess there's some lessons to be learned there for us, huh? Hi, Steve. Hey. Hey, uh, we're back with episode, what is this now, number eight? Yeah, yeah. look at that. Number, how did that happen so fast? I I don't know. And we're, we're on iTunes now. Did you know we've made the big time? Yeah. Let's, uh, let's, uh, crack one open and celebrate, I guess. We're talking about a bottle of water. Naturally, since we're in Utah, especially. All right. Uh, welcome everybody back to the Easton podcast. I'm George Techmachub with Steve, the big cat Anderson. And today we're here to talk about stabilizers, stabilization, uh, and related matters, Steve. Uh, we're going to try to cover compound. We're going to try to cover recurve, and we're going to try to cover bow hunting. So we're a little ambitious today. That's a lot to get through, but yeah, I think we, can we do uh, you know, we, we'll keep it short and simple. And if there's questions, you can always email us podcast at eastontp.com. You're right. So uh, I'm sure there will be more questions by the time we get done with this thing because we're here. We are. We're talking about the. Um, Trends and stabilizers to start with, I guess. And let's let's just start right off with uh, what the heck is going on these days with compounds. We're seeing people using, some people, using more and more mass weight on their compound stabilizers. What's the deal? Yeah, huge, huge amounts of weights all over the bow. Um, you get some shooters like Real Wild, Mike Schlosser, probably have 10 to 11 pound mass weight bows when all is said and done. So much so that, no joke, they have to fly with their weight stacks separate from their bow cases. Yeah, otherwise they're they're going over the 50-pound limit there. So, yeah, they're packing them separately. And I know it was actually an issue for Rio. Uh, when we got to Turkey, his bow case made it. His suitcase did not. So he had to find some weights there and assemble them until his uh, his clothes bag showed up. But Back in June in Antalya, huh? Yeah, yeah. He, he made it work. Well, yeah. Uh, but you know, here's the deal. There's a reason for it. And the reason has to do with several, like a perfect storm of stuff that has come into play in the last few years. That's actually made it possible to run that kind of weight on your stabilizers without turning it into a paint shaker. Yeah. Stiffer stabilizers. Exactly. Yeah. Stiffer rods. And that's been the trend since about 2009, I would say, you know, back in 1980s, uh, we at Easton, we made a boron carbon stabilizer that at the time was the stiffest thing you could get, but people thought it was too stiff. People actually figured, no, oh, this is too much. It, it, it vibrates at a certain frequency and it's too stiff. Mm. And then uh, in the late 1980s, we came out with the uh, ACE stabilizers and we had two models of that. We A lot of people don't remember this, but we had, we had a uh, sort of a medium stiff and a really stiff one. And people said, well, the, the medium stiff one's not stiff enough. And they wanted the stiffer one. And then in the 1990s, I actually came up with a product called the original X10 stabilizer, which was an inch in diameter, super lightweight, very, very stiff. And people loved it for the most part, at least outdoors. The one inch diameter didn't play so well. Uh, I I mean, indoors, they they didn't like it so much in the wind outdoors. Mm -hmm. And now here we are today um, looking at people using super stiff stabilizers like our own Z-Flex, uh, the Bee Stinger comes to mind. The Doinker, some of the Doinker models are pretty stiff. Uh, yeah. The Fatty. Yeah, the Fatty, the Platinum. Uh-huh. 
Um, lots of different manufacturers out there all playing. Uh, a couple of people, you know, just kind of making stuff in their basement and selling it on Archery Talk and whatever. And mm-hmm. uh, it's it's become easy to make for some companies uh, a a stabilizer that is basically just a tube and um, and is as stiff as you can get it. The hard part is making one that's really stiff and doesn't present a, a, a kite effect when you're out there in the wind. And we'll right. talk about that a little later. But, you know, um, we're not actually here to sell anybody anything. It's it's a discussion of what people are using. So while we're talking about people using these really stiff stabilizers, Steve, you still got your diehards out there with, with it's got to be the antithesis of the super stiff stabilizer. Example, the biter. The, the multi-rod stabilizer. Right. Originally, the uh, Kudlicek back in the 1980s. And then after Don Kudlicek um, sort of passed on that uh, that product to another company, you had Super Sticks. Super Sticks were like all the rage back in the day, right? From uh, Specialty Archery? Yeah, Specialty Archery Super Sticks. Before my day. Yeah, sure. But, uh, you know, I, I've been there, done that. So <laughs> No, but seriously, I mean, that was... Uh, you had the... Um, the top guys, you know, swearing by multi-rod stabilizers. And then you had the top guys swearing by the great big aluminum filled with foam stabilizers like the old Bomar. Mm-hmm. Remember those? Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, that's about a one and a eighth inch diameter aluminum tube, weighed a ton. Didn't put a lot of weight on it, but you didn't need to because the thing was already enormous. Yeah, basically just bumped up the mass weight, didn't do a whole lot for... End rod stabilization. No, but you know, I mean, these ginormous stabilizers were all the rage back in, say, 94, 95, somewhere in that time frame. And then you had companies doing stuff with uh, with carbon. I think Bill Levin deserves some credit, you know, with uh, having taken what was originally the Precision Balance Company and then Doinker and really kind of popularizing um, stabilizers that had dampers built into them. Although, you know, certainly he didn't invent the thing. He, he certainly made it popular. Mm-hmm. In fact, the first ones I saw were back in 83, um, a French company, Atletique. They actually had taken pieces of rubber hose and used those to couple the stabilizer and the weight. So it acted just like a doinker does today. It's exactly the same function. Right. Uh, some people loved those things, swore by them. Sylvain uh, Cadou in, in uh, Canada, one of the top guys, uh, used to shoot those things. Um, a lot of the Canadian guys shot those. A lot of the French guys shot those. And that's where I first saw them when I was shooting up in Canada, you know, when uh, when I lived in New York and I'd go to Canada for my uh, Canadian fetus, which is 2,800 or, or 288 arrows in a weekend, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, the trends have gone all over the place. Yeah. There's a little history and stabilization for those of you who maybe haven't seen it all like me. Yeah. Okay. So right now, if I go to Steve, the big cat Anderson, and I ask you, Steve, I just bought myself a... Um, Oh, I don't know, a, uh, what do you call that, that Matthews with no cam? The no cam? Yeah, the that one. Uh, the no cam. Or I buy uh, the Hoyt, uh, what's the hotness now? In, the Podium. In the Podium X, is podium that what X, it is? Yep. If I buy one of those things and I want to get rigged up and you're my coach, what are you going to tell me to do? Well, when I'm trying to help someone with compound stabilization, the first thing I try to get through their head is that it's not going to help you aim better. It's not going to help you hold in the middle of the target better. That's what I mean by that. Obviously, it'll help you aim better, help you aim slower. It's not going to give you a dead steady aim. But for those people who have what I like to call an anticipation issue where they freeze at 6 o'clock below the target, 
piling on the, the weight on the back bar isn't going to magically lift your arm upwards, despite what a lot of people think. So first and foremost, I try to say, okay, you don't want, you're, you're not chasing that magic pill that's going to give you a bow that just parks in the 10 ring and doesn't move. That doesn't exist. The, the best shooters in the world don't have that. In fact, some people would be freaked out if they did. Yeah, that, it doesn't work for me. When something holds in the middle too long and, and too perfect, usually it ends up in a letdown for whatever reason. But that's just an execution thing and what you're comfortable with. So I always recommend you get something that is predictable and slows the movement. So what I mean by predictable, I try to not balance the bow. There's a lot of people out there who take the bow, want to have it perfectly balanced. Some people even go as far as to get it on a jig that holds it by the pivot point of the grip. And then they perfectly balance it where the, the front stabilizer is parallel to the ground. The bubble level is totally level. And they move weights around from both sidebars to get that perfect balance. And that well, doesn't really me, work because a human being is actually holding the bow so all things go out the window when you right you know, when you actually grab the thing and you get the full draw right you get the full draw and you're either on the top or the bottom target and you're not holding perfectly parallel to the ground there's a lot of issues with that yeah similarly you got the guys out there preaching that there's a formula for this you know that yeah, if you do this and you do this and the bow is so long and your draw length is such and such, you plug this number into this number and it tells you exactly what it should be. That's um, Bravo it, Sierra. It gives uh, yeah, it gives you a good starting point sometimes Maybe. for some people, but it's it's not for all people. I mean, the, the people who start with that generally come to about a, a three-to-one ratio. For every one ounce on the front, you're putting three on the back bars. And... That's not where I end up. I'm really close to one-to-one, -one, but that's a, a very personal flavor for me as well. It's, it's different for everyone. So I stress to people, don't try to balance the bow. A, a balanced bow gives you zero directional bias. So if I'm holding perfectly in the middle and the bow is perfectly balanced, I don't know which way it wants to go. If I set up a bow that wants to fall forward and to the left, I have a really good idea of how I need to fight the bow per se, or, you know, apply counterbalance it, shall yeah. we say? Yeah. So, and you see that, you know, there was some shooters mm, 2003 to probably 2008, pretty much everyone followed the lead of Dave cousins and ran their sidebar straight out the side. And that basically just took the bow on a roll to the left. If you're a right-hand shooter. And that worked really well for a lot of guys. And it, Particularly it's, for Dave. Yeah, yeah, for Dave, obviously it worked well, but for some other guys too. So I've done something similar with, with hunting setup, which we can address later. But for target, I like to have kind of the same scenario. I'm not straight out the side, but my sidebar is kicked out pretty far. Right now I have a 33-inch front bar with about 16 ounces on the front and a 15-inch sidebar with 23 so it creates a pretty heavy forward roll and a roll to the left. And that's what I counter against. It's kind of your natural follow through too, right? Yeah. That's the way you're going to expand as you create the shot. All right. So we know that the stabilizer has basically three functions. You know, uh, I've written about this before, you know, you've talked about this, you've lectured about it. You did seminars on this and I think uh, we need to we need to talk about what those three functions are. The first function is during the aiming process, right? During the aiming process, whatever that process is, 
with whatever kind of bow it is, that needs to cooperate with your aiming process. Right. That's what I call the predictability. Yep. In other words, you don't want to be fighting it. Nope. But you do want it to be counterbalancing you a little bit, providing you a little bit of resistance in the right direction, whatever that might be for yourself. Yeah. And you want it to give you a feeling of confidence when you're at full draw. You don't want it wobbling. No. That front end waggle, which you might you might call where you basically your front end is as you apply tension in the back of your shot, it starts to move right to left. That's generally an issue of not enough weight on the front bar. And you know what happens, and maybe not enough stiffness on the stabilizer potentially. That too, yeah. But you know what happens, right? It creates a feedback loop. You're at full draw. You feel the motion. You bear down. You make it move more. Mm-hmm. It turns into a vicious cycle. And, yeah. And then you end up letting down, and, and, and that's no good because you only got 20 seconds on the clock. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, that's number one is to give you a good feeling, whatever that may be. And nobody can tell you what that is. You need to some pretty much figure that out for yourself, I'm pretty sure. Yep. Yeah, there's some commonalities. I mean, there's some things that some most people agree on, and there's some things that most people agree on that they like and that they agree on that they don't like. But generally speaking, it's going to be an individual thing. Now, the second thing that a stabilizer does is quite different for a compound than it is for a recurve. For a compound... Because the impulse on the arrow and because the paradox of the arrow is in the vertical plane, stabilizer has a particular kind of effect that does not affect the tune of the rig quite as much, arguably, because you're offsetting that effect with your launcher. Right. On the recurve, though, our motion is left to right Mm -hmm. during the launch, right? Because the arrow, the string rather, is coming out from behind our fingers Fingers don't get out of the way in time. Nope. So you're putting a big bend on the back of the arrow. The arrow is pushing against the bow. That's when the stabilizer is actually doing the work. That's when the money that you're putting into a, a solid, you know, really good, well-made stabilizer is, is actually working during that 15 milliseconds or so. Mm-hmm. Because it's keeping the bow from translating to the right for a right-handed shooter and effectively changing the tune. So what the stabilizer is really doing is maintaining the bow's position in space. After that, just about everything that happens can be gravy. The whole thing could disassemble and you wouldn't care because the arrow's already in the air. Then there's the third function of the stabilizer, which is the function of dissipation of vibration. Now, that's a, another matter of taste, right? Yeah, the feel. Yeah. and Yeah, you get guys who want a lot of dampening, guys who don't. Um, I'd say if you're if you're executing shots properly, you probably don't feel a whole lot of difference from one to the other yeah if you're grabbing back onto your bow you're going to feel some more vibration from one model to the other but you know even even those of us who are recurve shooters who don't hold the bow at all you know allow it to basically float free Mm -hmm. and let the sling catch it you would not believe how difficult it is to get somebody to try something different than what they are used to once they have it in their mind that this is the feel i must have yeah you know, I, I've done a lot of work with a lot of shooters on this subject, and I can tell you that um, the hardest thing is to get them to change, if you have a good reason to change, by the way, because what's honestly true is, quite frankly, there aren't too many good reasons out there. Um, but from the fundamental standpoint of, of just trying to get that feel down, make the bow jump a certain way, 
Do you agree that there's a commonality there for the compound, that last part of the shot, that you want it to, to leave your hand a certain way or you want it to follow through a certain way? Yeah, feel is important. I think on a compound, though, there's as much in that in the bow design as there is in how you stabilize the bow. Uh -huh. I mean, more parallel limbs, you don't get that push away from your hand. Yeah, whereas the geometry on most recurves is pretty much the same. Yeah, I mean, they're all know. working the same direction. So, that yeah, they're all basically non-parallel configurations and you get a lot more impulse out of the limbs than you do out of most modern compounds even even your target compounds right your your what is it, the pro comp elite that kind of thing yeah you know those things are those things are from the standpoint of what's trendy in a hunting bow 57 chevys you know from <laughs> yeah. the standpoint of the limb layout yeah like you know let's say the the older the 2010 contender elites with 3,000 limbs you know much more upright longer limb now you're talking about a hoyt bow here but you know there's a there's yeah. a there's a matthews um what is the c4 the c4 Apex and and those things have the same basic layout you know yeah. from that standpoint right more basically upright. a vertical a vertical limb that jumps a lot on the shot and mm -hmm. and guess what that's something you need yeah like a lot of guys prefer that feel um it's feedback it, it is feedback beyond that I truly believe a bow that wants to work away from you rather than up and down is a little more favorable in the wind, but that's my personal preference there. There'll certainly be some guy with parallel limbs who kicks my butt at some tournament and you know, that'll happen and I'll turn around and beat him at the next one. So it's all kind of irrelevant. It's just a feel I, I like and a, a thing I truly believe in my mind. Yeah, but on any given day, I think if you were to pull a vast majority of compound guys and women, they would tell you that they'd prefer a bow that talks back to them versus one that just sits there. Agreed. And I think that part of the role of the stabilizer is to not snuff out the feedback you get from the bow. Yeah. So you're seeing not too many of the rubber dampers and things lately on compound stabilizers. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, it's starting to go away. There are still a number of people who use something either on the weight end or on the very distal end of the stabilizer. They might have a rubber damper. Um, ours, you know, the system I use has a, our AVRS system within it, which is basically a a type of, of powder that we install in the base. Of the it acts like a fluid in there. Yeah. And then there's, you know, other companies, I think uh bee stinger has a rubber end in theirs and everyone's got a little, some variation. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of rubber bits hanging off of the stabilizer. Yeah. And most of that's to take care of problem number three, which is, you know, what it feels like after the arrow's gone. Yeah. Which I mean, like you mentioned the dissipation of vibration, that's important on a number of levels. One, if you're a high volume shooter, if you're working with a ton of vibration, you're going to have some tennis elbow. Yeah, soon. you're going to get RSI. You're going to get a repetitive stress injury. Yep, and that that happens. Um, I know a number of shooters who have sore elbows this time of year and shoulders and things like that. And uh, I had noticed it when I first switched to an ultra stiff stabilizer. My my elbow got sore, and then um, switching to well, you you kind of get accustomed to it, or you you find a little better system for dampening. And who knows, you know, you get a combo that works better and yeah. goes away. But. but damping, you know, is, is important to some folks and, um, very great stiffness is important to some folks. The more, more weight you're using, the more stiffness people are demanding. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're responding to that. Other manufacturers are responding to that, providing for designs that have stiffer and stiffer configurations, hopefully without increasing your diameter by too much so that you're not putting it out there as a sail plane. Right. And for me, I'm, 
tending to lean towards the stiffest bars offered. And um, the, the other side of that, you know, the vibration dissipation is a bar that's really stiff and has a lot of vibration is going to rattle the bow loose. You're going to be tightening your sight knob, checking screws, mod screws, stuff like that. And that's not good in a tournament setting. And yet that's not universal. Not all of the top guys are using that solution. No. I'm thinking of Sergio Pagni. Right. Yeah. Sergio still using a, a multi-rod stabilizer, which... A biter. Yeah, a biter. And which, you know, th- I mention it because the old Kudlicek had metal fittings. Okay? The biter has plastic fittings. Mm-hmm. So if you take a biter and you attach it to a bow and you whack it on the ground, you'll turn it into a curve because there's slip built in. Right. Right? You can actually straighten them by hand. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So so here's the deal. What I'm getting at is that biter is like a big sponge out there for the vibration and stuff, but it it's counterintuitive that it ought to work for the guys who like that really stiff aiming solution, and yet it does work. Yeah, Sergio, uh, I, I've heard that he prefers that simply because, number one, he's used it forever. Number two, he feels he can better manipulate his his aim and his shot and yeah you mentioned that in the pre-show we were talking about Sergio in particular and it's like you know he's like you know he can he can kind of snatch the pebble out of the hand you know he's he's quick but uh you know that's the feeling he has it's not necessarily reality and for Sergio you know he was doing this at such a high level so long ago and if you look at his setups from 10 years ago and to set up now, it's not a whole lot different. That's important to note. You know, yeah. some of the guys who are really successful, they're not the ones changing stuff radically from year to year. Nope. Rio, I think, comes to mind as somebody who has his gradual change rather than big changes from year to year. Yeah, his Braden, too. Yeah, I mean, I've seen Rio go from bar out the sidebar out the side to sidebar straight back, and I guess it's just a feeling he's used to but once he goes to something he's probably going to shoot that for the majority of the season he doesn't make a change from one week to the next unlike some recurve shooters we know yeah and it's uh i'm I'm also very slow to change i mean it in a matter of two years i think i've added about four ounces to stabilizer weight and that's it that's just because of volume of shooting and spending more time shooting in the wind at FIDA events so world archery events yeah excuse me <laughs> Yeah, you'd think that, you know, I say feed it all the time. Yeah. I just, I don't know why. I just, uh, I guess I'm old school. Old habits. So, um, we know that the, the trend is toward heavier and heavier stacks. If we, if we, uh, look at the average, both for men and for women, Steve, or is that mostly just a man thing still? I think it's coming up across the board and it's, I mean, you see a guy like Rio have such success and then Mike Schlosser do the same thing. Huge success shooting a heavy stabilizer setup and people want to try it themselves. And, and that's, it's important to know. Here's what I tell people. Number one, you look at another guy, do it. And you got to realize their posture at full draw might be considerably different. Rio in particular, Rio and Mike both lean back and who knows how hard they're actually pulling someday. And Brian gold, an engineer at Hoyt mentioned this. He said he'd like to get them on a load cell and see how hard they're actually pulling on the bow as they break the shot. Interesting. Because that does a lot for how much weight you can handle up. In other words, how hard you are into the stops. Yeah. 
So is the thought that maybe they're not that hardened at the stops, or uh, that they really are hardened in the stops? Pulling the wheels off the bow. I see. So it's it's interesting, and I'm sure. <laughs> and by the way, Brian is is one of the top shooters we know as well. Yeah. He just doesn't get out much, but when no. he does, look out. Yeah, Brian is one of the best shooters I know, and. He, if you haven't heard his name, just wait till another big tournament. He'll he'll be well, there. Redding for sure, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, he he uh, podiumed at Redding or almost podiumed at Redding. Um, he and I actually had a tie for first two years ago, uh-huh. and then he was darn close to making the shoot off at Vegas last year. He shoots like three tournaments a year and always shows up. So. And and typical Hoyt engineers working sixty seventy hours a week. So <laughs> yeah, so he's a busy guy, but super smart engineer. Yeah, nice guy. Yeah, and I think. You know what? Maybe that'll be the next thing. We'll be we'll be checking our load cell, you know, and and people will be refining their shot process based off of that. You know, okay, I broke the shot this time with you know forty pounds of tension, and and last time I did it with thirty three. You know what what happened there? So that that could be something that comes to fruition and, and becomes common practice. But at the moment, it's not. So getting, you feel like there's a downside to any of that? Um, no, but getting back to you know as it relates to stabilization the harder you pull into the stops the more weight you can handle up front i mean it's the same principle if you hold your bow up without being hooked to the release and without being at full draw it's pretty darn hard hard to hold up for a very long time so you add holding weight into the mix and how hard you actually pull and there's a lot of variables that come into play there those guys shoot a pretty high holding weight upwards of 22 pounds 23 pounds even more so if you're holding, you know, somewhere about 16 to 18 pounds, like a lot of people, chances of you being able to stick 25 ounces on the front bar and make it work are pretty slim. You like to have a proportional yeah, there's, mass to holding weight. Yeah. And then the second thing I always preach is you shouldn't shoot a, a total mass weight that you can't steadily aim for longer than your shot process. So uh, me, you know, having done this i go out and i have someone just record how long it takes for me from the moment i start drawing my bow to shoot a shot and i do it over about a 30 shot average i'm usually between about seven and ten seconds and watching myself in like the the finals at world archery events i can do the same thing i can watch the clock and say okay usually i'm firing in about eight seconds here so i've got to be able to hold my bow steady as steady as I can without the shot deteriorating for about, let's call it 11 seconds in case I get a little long on the shot. So if you're at a 12-second window and you're starting to break down at 8 seconds, you probably got too much mass weight on the bow. Time to pull some weights off and lose the ego. Some people just aren't big enough or strong enough, or they just don't shoot enough arrows to shoot a 10-pound mass weight bow, you know, and it's okay to go six ounces on the front if that's what you can handle is this the kind of thing you've got to discover under pressure mm, yeah and honestly i think the more weight you can handle under pressure the better also in the wind you know it uh it helps it keeps you less jittery but the more weight you try to handle that you can't you'll never be able to aim from the get-go you'll never be able to what i call park the bow in your little area that you're going to you know be aiming and 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 what i mean by that is if your normal hold is from 10 line to 10 line on a vegas face you know then or or just outside the 10 line you don't vary outside the 10 very much then that's that's what i call your parking spot 
just let it float naturally. But if your, your hold starts getting wide, starts going red to red, you're in trouble. Well, what do you do in the wind? I mean, you know, Copenhagen, we're, you know, that was, that was windy. Bellock two years before that, super windy. I saw guys in Bellock, by the way, taking long rods off and putting yeah. on short, I think Braden, maybe? A lot of guys do. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and that's desperation right there to a degree, I yeah. think. Right? I mean, but what are you going to do? I mean. In, in that, I mean. 30, 40 mile an hour gusts. Yeah. I call that a roll of the dice anyway. So if we're talking a more manageable wind, like 15 miles an hour then I, for me personally, I don't like to change the setup because it changes the way the, the grip is pitched in my hand and, and stuff like that. But I try to already be there with my setup. You it's try to be already heavy enough. You oh, know? I see. Yeah. So if I'm having to add weight, then maybe I wasn't heavy enough to begin. Interesting thought there. Talk about recurve a little bit here. Yeah. You know, back, um, back in my day. <laughs> <laughs> Don't want to say that, but you know I used to shoot with Daryl Pace a bit, and Daryl used to have a uh, an attitude that was I want that bow light, I want that that bow light because I want to be able to snatch it back into the middle if the wind blows me off course. And then you had guys who wanted more mass weight. You know I think back when Simon Fairweather was in his Hulk mode. For those of you who don't know what I mean, back in '91 when Simon Fairweather uh, won the World Outdoor. He was built like the proverbial bull. He had the upper body of a Steve Anderson. <laughs> I'm serious. And the lower body of a Wiley e. Coyote. And, um, you know, and, and by 2000, when he won the Olympic Games, he was totally leaned out as a, like a marathon runner because he was doing a bit of that. A lot of that, actually. So he was a different guy. But my point is, back when Simon was, uh, you know, Hulk upper body he shot more ma- more mass weight than the average person out there and he made it made it stick which makes sense yeah but we've never come close to shooting a kind of mass weight you guys are currently shooting on compounds until the last i'd say last 18 months and i'd i would say just looking at things from my perspective brady ellison's had a big impact on that yeah brady shoots a lot of weight for a recurver and now we're seeing ojin hyuk following suit yeah i think i counted like 12 ounces on one bar at knee yeah. for him? Yeah, a ton. Yeah. I mean, let's face it, that's a ton of weight Yeah, on a recurve bow. On a recurve, yeah. Now, I'm not I'm not here saying, you know, Brady Ellison started this. Maybe, I think he did, but, you know, I, I'm sure somebody else out there may have tried it too. And, and in fact, just to be fair, the Swedes for many years were running these super heavy swing bars in field archery. Mm-hmm. My buddy Jorn Bjerndal was running pretty high total mass weights. I'm talking about big weights on the end of long stiff stabilizers that's that's really what i mean because yorn was shooting a nine pound recurve bow back you know 20 years ago mm-hmm. and and doing very well with it by the way but the bottom line is i you know we've gone from generally speaking lighter setups to generally speaking heavier setups on recurves now i'm going to tell you right now if you're listening to this podcast that unless your name is Ojin Hyuk or Brady Ellison or you're shooting a thousand arrows a week, be careful. And why do I say that? Because you can hurt your front shoulder. You can hurt your front elbow. You can do a number of bad things if you throw too much mass weight on there on top of being overbowed, which a lot of folks already are. 
And so I'm going to suggest to you that if you're looking at a situation where you have a Brady Ellison setup in mind, work with a coach. Work with a coach. Don't just go throwing 12 ounces of weight on the front of your stabilizer. Absolutely. It's it's hard enough to aim those as is, let alone to be fighting something where you're overbowed. You know, I left out the fourth characteristic of the stabilizer, and it could very well be the most important one of all. Do you know what it is? I do not. You gotta Maybe be able I do. To, you got to be able to rest your bow on the ground, man. Exactly. Yeah, that's true. So if it's too far of a reach because you've got too short of a stabilizer, that's no good. No, that's priority number one in it's, my setup. It's right up there. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm serious. I, how many arrows in a given week before you go to a World Cup are you shooting, let's say? Just mm. just on average. You know, if I'm if, if it's a World Cup week. Let, let's say it's 1,000. Yeah, yeah. All right. Call it 500 so to 1,000. For, for 1,000 arrows, you're going to pick up and put that bow down 300 times. With, with the left shoulder. And you're going to get tired. You're going to get fatigued, and it's going to, you know, potentially – you're going to hurt yourself. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm dead serious right now. So the ergonomic aspect, you know, all joking aside, the ergonomic aspect is important. And so, you know, I, I, I'm all for somebody, partly at least, picking their stabilizer based on, you know, how far they've got to go to reach to get that thing down on the ground. Exactly. Which is why you shoot a 62-inch stabilizer. <laughs> yes. I If we had it, I might try it. So anyway... We've got uh, a few minutes left here, and we've had some uh, some folks call in with questions and uh, comments, and a couple of them have come in in the last uh, day or so. Let's uh, let's shift gears here and answer some of those. We got one one listener who's asking the question of how come I'm seeing the front of my arrows wearing quickly when I shoot into straw targets. You're, well, you're not saying anything, Question Steve. and answer right, right there. Yeah, that is right. Straw targets. Here's, here's my quip, and I actually mean this. Don't shoot 21st century arrows into 16th century target butts. <laughs> I mean it. Oh, it's, I mean yeah. it. These, these arrows were not engineered to be shot into freaking pine boards. You know, I mean, that's, and, and quite literally, there's one brand of straw target that's sold in Europe that uses a cone-shaped piece of wood in the middle to hold the thing together. I'm sorry. This is not a good thing to buy. If you're a club and you're trying to save some money, you're just taking it out on your members and you're taking it out on your, on your uh, members' wallets, not to mention their, sh- their, their pulling shoulders. Yeah, if I'm a member, maybe I'll pay double membership fee, you know, and, you and know, hope that we can get some Buy a Denage. Buy a Reinhardt. Buy a, a, a Stanley Hips. An Eleven, yeah. There's, An Eleven, those are great. There's good options out But there. if you could marry the, the core or the center core of the Eleven, the yellow part, to the Denage Domino, I think you'd be in heaven for, for Target Butt. Best of both worlds. Absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, the day of the freaking wound-up straw bale is over, at least as far as world archery is concerned, because you're not allowed to have those things in a tournament. Exactly. And it's for a good reason. People hurt themselves trying to get arrows out of those trying things. Trying to get arrows out, or, you know, they, they can't finish a tournament with two dozen arrows because they they just wear them out. They break well, them. It's, and it doesn't matter whose arrow, Eastern arrows, the other guy's arrows, whatever. It's mm-hmm. just They're just not designed to stop arrows. They're designed to, to be 
nailed to the side of buildings or whatever as insulation, but they're certainly not meant as, as arrow-stopping material, at least not by anybody, you know, with any sense. So uh, I'm just going to suggest that, you know, if your club insists on buying these these horrible targets, that you have a word with them and point out the fact that you're spending a lot of money on top-quality arrows from any manufacturer. And, you know, whose money are you preserving here? Yeah, there's even, I mean, if... if uh, obviously, budget is a factor for everyone. There's some sure. homemade remedies out there. There's always better options. You know, when I started out in this sport, I, I I made good work of taking some of my mother's linens in a cardboard box and creating my own target. Yep. However, that was a very expensive target. Yes, I uh, I paid for that thing in so many ways. <laughs> being from Idaho, mine was actually uh, stuffed plastic bags inside a potato sack. So the, the plastic bags were wrapped around cardboard, which was then uh, plastic sealed with, uh, you know, like a, a plastic wrap of, what do you call that stuff you use in the kitchen? And uh, Like saran wrap type saran stuff? Saran wrap, yeah. yeah, there we go. And, and then it had a potato sack for, for good Idaho measure. Well, I had, the, I had the excuse of being six years old. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Not much of an excuse. But anyway, yeah, so that was one question we had. You know, why are my arrows breaking after three months? Well, yeah, don't don't shoot don't shoot targets that sound like that. <laughs> bad bad idea. Bad. All right. Next uh, next question. I heard you guys were going to do a podcast about target stabilizers. What about us bow hunters? All right, Steve. I know that you and I have talked about this a little bit. You've got some ideas here. What do bow hunters need to do now? Uh, shall we start with Western or Eastern? Well, I'm from the West. Let's All right, start, start with, with West. West. <laughs> okay, so. I mean, we, we have uh, the latest trend in, in hunting stabilization involves the use of a sidebar. And a lot of guys, we'll, we'll touch on both east and west here. A lot of guys out east think, hey, that's awesome. You know, that, that helps with how I'm aiming out of a tree stand. If I'm shooting at a hard downward angle, a sidebar works. I like that. I, Offsets I, your bow quiver if you have one? Yeah. and or, or if they're taking the quiver off, you know, it just gives them a familiar feel from what they might have on their target bow. Provides, you know, all the same advantages we use for target bows. They can take it to their hunting bow, and it's arguably more important to be as accurate. By, by the way, if you're talking about guys with a target bow who are also bow hunters, you're, you're, you're hanging out at the top of the pyramid here. Right. A lot, of the, a lot of the bow hunter guys back east, in particular, bow hunting is what they do. That's it. That's, That's their it. archery. Yeah. But, you know, they, they see the guy at the shop. They've kind of had their, their toes dipped into the target archery world a little bit, so... They, they get the, the advantages of using a sidebar, and they're not carrying it, you know, five, six miles a day at 8,000 feet, so weight is probably not a premium. All right, so how long is a sidebar, and uh, how do you mount it? You know, a lot of guys do just a, an 8 to 10-inch, maybe a 12-inch sidebar. They might be using the you know, same length on the front. You got it sticking out toward the uh, target side, or do you have it sticking back toward the shooter? Most guys are going towards the shooter, maybe a little angle to it. You know, kind of, kind of the the happy medium, you could say. How much uh, how much weight do you have on one of those? You think typically? A lot of guys, probably anywhere from, you know, six ounces on the front bar to ten ounces on the front bar, and and probably about an equal amount on the sidebar. So, what's the combination? What's is there is there something that works well for a lot of folks? Like I say, twelve inch front bar, eight inch sidebar, vice versa. What what seems to be in vogue? Um, a ten to twelve inch front. And about an eight to ten inch side. I mean, the side you don't you don't need a whole lot on the side more than just to literally offset the sight 
and the quiver if you're going to keep one on. So you can do this right now. Today, as we speak, you can do this with, uh, let's say, a Z-Flex side rod right. right, for the front rod. Uh, maybe an extender or another side rod for the side rod. Mm-hmm. And one of our sidekick uh, adapters. Yeah, which is what I'm using. So to touch on the out west guys who they say, well, no, I'm, I'm hiking at 8,000 feet. It's already like I'm breathing through a straw tube. I'm not putting any more weight on my bow. And the first thing I tell them is, you know what? It actually, you add a little bit of weight to the bow. All you're really adding is a sidebar. Most of these guys already use a front bar. So you add, you add a sidebar, you maybe add six to eight ounces total to the bow, you know, maybe, maybe 10. But what you do is you get a bow that carries a lot easier when you're walking five miles and that thing is perfectly balanced side to side. No longer does it want to rotate in your hand when you're holding it. It just carries a lot easier. And that's important. Weight of the bow is one thing. How well the bow carries is another. And we all know that based off hunting packs, you know, a a pack that weighs five pounds, but sucks on your back sucks pack that weighs eight pounds and carries awesome feels a lot lighter than that five pound pack. so you're actually pointing out that it's got nothing to do with shooting the thing it's got to do with hucking the thing over a long <laughs> period of time and and the bow carries better yeah it carries better the advantage there it all it also shoots better because we're not taking our quivers off so for me personally i have a, a 12 inch front bar a z flex front bar and i have about two to three ounces on that front bar it does beg the question, what would you rather have after you've been sucking air through a straw at 8,000 feet? A bow with a stabilizer or a bow without one when you've had to, say, run 150 yards to make an intercept point on some kind of animal? You- yeah, I'd rather have some weight on there to slow that bow down. There you go. Because I'm already going to be waving it around fast enough just because there's an animal in front of me. Double that because I just hoofed it 150 yards. And now, you know, I've got it at full draw i think i'd like to have something on there to slow the roll a little bit on that pin so personally i run the sidebar straight out the side i only add two ounces to it with the five arrow quiver for me that seems to work pretty good to to keep things balanced side to side i I do want to balance that one i'm not trying to do it like i am my hunting bow i want that bow to carry as easily as possible most important question though black or camo Mm, for me black but i got a black bow goes with everything yeah everyone else the majority of bow hunters probably going to say camo there who knows what are you doing this weekend your first time home for a while yeah um we have a theme park here my wife really has wanted to go to it for a while you're gonna go do some non-archery stuff huh some non-archery stuff nice yeah i'm going to lagoon so i'm doing archery stuff my coach dick tones flying in with a couple of members of the canadian team that's right and uh, we're gonna have camps at the uh, archery center you and Dick Tone and uh, Jay Bars, Jay Bars gonna is going to yeah. be there. Yeah. So, in fact, we'll be doing podcasts with each of those two guys, and maybe one together. Ooh, ooh, that could be fireworks. <laughs> yeah. With with Jay, we might have to do a lot of editing. Oh no, no. <laughs> oh no, 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 my friend. We are not edit. Just like this podcast, not one edit, one cut. It's a single cut because I got to make life easier on Jay Jensen over there in the marketing department, who is the guy who actually uploads these things. He hasn't, right. you know. He's, he's, he's driven with an iron fist over there. Yeah, he doesn't have a lot of time for us. No, so, you know, we've got to do this thing in one take. And so far, you know, pretty much, these have all been in one take, which yeah. might be why, well, never mind. <laughs> pretty authentic stuff. Lord help us with Jay on the microphone. Oh, yeah, well, you know, I'm anticipating the uh, the fireworks. But, you know, what I'm really looking forward to is, is uh, talking to Dick Tone because um, Dick's been my coach for... 30 years probably and you wouldn't believe some of the stories 
And they're all true stories. And he used to work with Doug Easton directly. And then he worked with Jim Easton directly. So he and I have that in common. And, and you know, he's uh, started his own business. You know, he, uh, he was one of the top shooters in the world in the 1960s. He uh, built, along with Jim Easton, stuff for the Apollo program that's on the moon right now. Wow. And he's got stories about the Vietnam War, and he's got stories about shooting in different countries, and then coaching as a master coach, the Olympic coach, coach of the Pan Am Games team back in the 80s. Dick's got some great stories, and I'm sure that uh, we don't even have enough time for one podcast if we get him to tell as many of his stories. But on top of that, you know, he's a he's a pretty serious bow hunter. Yeah, I've heard he also makes a uh, a mean putter for the golf course. As a matter of fact, Dick, uh, with his Cavalier Equipment Company, at one point there was making more putters than he was making archery stuff. And everybody and their mother knows about stuff like the Cavalier Elite Tab and the Cavalier Plunger and the Cavalier Magnetic Clicker and the Cavalier Launcher Rests and the Free Flight Rests. And, you know, he did all that before he sold his company. And... Um, yeah, he's a serious golfer too. So <laughs> naturally, you know, the sports and you, I know you're a serious golfer uh, as much as you can be. Uh, at least I think you're doing it more for fun, but you're still serious when you're out there. You know, the mental game's the same. Right now I, I say it's for fun, but yeah, it's, uh, I can't do anything just for fun. It's, yeah, it's, it's all a, in or nothing. It's you a know? sickness we have. Yeah. yeah. All right, Steve. Well, that, that wraps up another Easton podcast uh, talking about stabilizers. When we, uh, when we do our next tech podcast, I'm going to want to get some more input from our listeners. So the address for people who have a question? Easton, excuse me, let's start that again. Podcast at EastonTP.com. Yeah, podcast at EastonTP.com. Easton Technical Products is EastonTP. So podcast at EastonTP.com. And if, uh, if we answer your question, we'll send you a nice piece of swag from the company. I guess that wraps it up. Thank you for joining us. I'm George Tekmachov with Steve the Big Cat Anderson for another Easton podcast. And that one's in the can, Steve. I guess uh, I don't know if we covered everything we wanted to cover there. You know, it's probably best we don't let the let the listeners uh, chomp on it a little bit and, and come back with some questions. So, I'm, you know, I'm trying to figure out whether it's better to do it the way we do it, which is pretty much unstructured, no notes in front of us, right? We just, it's two archers having a conversation. Or should we be reading from the owner's manual? I, I I hope that, you know, we're doing it right. So I'm hoping people will let us know. I don't know. But we also need to point out, you know, go uh, subscribe on iTunes. We oh, are yeah. on iTunes now. Yeah, we're big time, man. <laughs> we're working on it. So we need some subscribers on there, though. Hey, listen, Steve, if we make 10,000 subscribers, I will double your salary for the podcast. Perfect. Yeah. That's what Tom Dillon used to tell me when I was announcing for World Archery. You know, he said, oh, you did a good job. I'm going to double your salary. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. Zero times two. Time to go. I'm hitting stop.